may get a sense from the psalms that we have sung and from the prayers offered that the subject of the sermon today is going to be God's judgment. And this is true. We are entering into this new book of the Bible, and I look forward to to learning of God's judgment that is represented here by David as, as the uh, coming king. Listen as I read 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Find that on page 349. Listen to God's word. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? The young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now, when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. I answered, here I am. He said to me, who are you? So I answered, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me. My life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, as they had fallen by the sword." And David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head. By your own mouth, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. King Saul is dead. You know, from the previous text that he fell not by the hand of this Amalekite, but killed by his own hand. Three of his sons fell with him in the battle as well. The enemy took their bodies and desecrated them. 
Brave men did go by night, reclaimed those bodies, took them back with them to the land of Israel, and buried them with some shred of honor. Honor, yes, but surely a dark and fearful day for the nation of Israel, for the people of God. Their demand for a king had come to a disastrous end. Now, 2 Samuel opens up with that background. It opens up now in the camp of David, and news about Saul's death comes to him. This event immediately confronts us with David and of of the fact that he now is the anointed and presumptive king of Israel. And it confronts us with what commentator calls the kingdom principles that David had learned all throughout his life and that now, uh, not just now, but now come to fruition in some dramatic ways. He is confronted with decisions that he has to make as the anointed king. How will David react to this news? How will he govern his actions since he is now the anointed king? Those questions will be an opportunity for us to see God's redemptive purposes being enacted even before Jesus came. But as I said last week, I want you to hear this and I want you to read it and to, to meditate on it in light of the fact that the greater one than David would come. That David stands as a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the way in which Jesus is governed by the will of the Father. And as David shows in his decisions that he governs his life as a man and now as a king, he governs his life by God's word, so too he stands as a foreshadowing of Christ. For Jesus fulfills this perfectly. When he said on the Sermon on the Mount, do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And that fulfillment is played out especially here in David's judgments, which he leans into the judgments of God. And this is going to lead us especially to see our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been invested with royal authority and the responsibility to judge the living and the dead. That confrontation will prompt us to see our own sins, heed his call to repent. So we're going to begin with David, trace that to Jesus and the gospel that he gives to us. David, first of all, leaned into God's judgment and the fact that he withheld judgment against King Saul. This isn't anything new, though, is it? How many opportunities did David have to take Saul out? We know of two particular instances that are very dramatically told to us. Once, David was hiding in a cave, and 
It just so happened that Saul went in there to rest alone. A perfect opportunity for David to take him out. Another time, Saul was pursuing David, and at night they were all had gone to sleep, and the guards were lax, and David and his captains sneaked in Saul's camp. They stood over him while he was asleep, and all of his guards around him were asleep. Another opportunity to kill him. And even his captain said, look, look, here's our opportunities. I'll do it for you. They even gave a theological argument. Surely God has given your enemy into our hands. Let me kill him for you. Those circumstances seemed providential, didn't they? But David didn't guide his life on circumstances. Guided his decisions, he guided his life on God's word. And in this case, he understood that God had appointed Saul to be king. By the hand of his servant Samuel, the prophet, God had sent Samuel to anoint Saul to be king. He was the Lord's anointed. Because he was the Lord's anointed, that put Saul in a position of being set apart by God himself. David understood that to be a sacred position, and he honored the office of king and so withheld judgment against him when he had many opportunities to take that into his own into his own hands why do i bring that up now it's because this man from amlek comes with news of saul's death and his news and his underlying motivation really represent the very temptation david was facing all through this experience and, and it's what David had resisted up to this point. For David, too, had been anointed to be king. Saul was the anointed king. How do we bring those two together? How could a, a transition take place between Saul, whom God had anointed, and David, whom God had anointed as well? Well, question is, would David wait upon the Lord, or would he think that God's plan needed a little help, and that all he needed to do was to grasp the situation that was there in front of him, take matters into his own hands to take Saul out? Amalek comes grasping after this opportunity, grasping after this chance that he saw to ingratiate himself with David. And so the Amalek comes, and in this situation, he seeks God's favor, or David's favor, perhaps even a reward. But this man didn't know David very well certainly didn't know the Lord. At worst, 
came thinking that he would gain David's favor by saying, I killed your enemy. In the best possible light, he could have played it this way. He could have said, Saul could have fallen into the hands of the enemy. I was merciful to him by, uh, by killing him. And, uh, and here is evidence of that. But again, played to gain David's favor. I tend to think the worst of this situation because of the human tendency to take matters into our own hands. And I find myself a lot in that. Often have we sought to accomplish God's purposes in ways that we think are wise or proper or fall into the circumstances all the while violating God's will. It is, oh, so tempting to to think, I've waited long for this. Surely this is the time for me to act. David understood that this was a violation of God's will. Raise his hand against God's anointed. So in David's instance, he would resist the temptation that the Amalek presented before him, resisted the temptation to rejoice, resisted the temptation to reward someone who had taken advantage of this situation. Now, ironically, we know, as David didn't know, that this Amalekite was not the one who killed Saul, that he had actually killed himself by falling on his sword. But what David did know and what's revealed here is that Saul was was dead by this man's hand and that the Amalekite claimed to have killed Saul, the Lord's anointed, something that David steadfastly resisted, even though it was to his own hurt. And in doing so, David was leaning in to the fact that God is the judge in this situation. He had no right or authority to lift up his hand against King Saul. And that's evidenced, secondly here, by what David does next. And it might surprise you. It says that David took hold of his own clothes and he tore them. That was a sign of great grief in David's day. He and all of the men that were with him, it says that they tore their clothes, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord in the house of Israel, as they had fallen by the sword. I want you to notice something here in the way uh, way the book, the narrator tells this story. There's a a very Hebrew structure to the passage here that places what is most important right in the center so that it gains your attention. And right here in the center is David's mourning for King Saul and for the house of Israel. That's what is, uh, is set in front of us as the most important aspect of this, of this passage. And humanly speaking, this is very surprising, isn't it? 
Let's just remember what Saul had done to David. Saul had hunted him like a dog, intent on killing him. He had assembled what we might call today special forces to go and try to track him down, hunt him down, and to kill him. He had thrown his own spear at David, trying to pin him to the wall when he had an opportunity to. He sent men to kill him in his own bed while he was asleep. When he heard that a certain city of priests had given aid to David, he went and wiped out that whole village. This is what Saul had done to David. You might expect David to celebrate the death of his enemy. You know how it goes? Ding dong, the wicked king is dead. That's not what David did. He mourned. Genuinely mourned the death of Saul. can understand his sorrow over Jonathan, his best friend had died in battle. In fact, the passage that we'll come to next week, Lord willing, is going to elaborate on that. You can understand the, him mourning over the death of his best friend. But Saul? Yes, Saul. And here's why. goes back to God's anointing Saul as king. As the Lord's anointed, as king, Saul had been set apart by God, and David honors that. And since Saul was killed in battle, And since Jonathan had fallen, and since the people of the Lord had been humbled by this crushing defeat by the Philistines, David understood that the Lord was judging Saul and all of Israel. And in understanding that, he understood that God's judgment was not an opportunity for rejoicing. Instead, as the commentator Phillips says, that God's judgment is always a call for grief and repentance. It is time for uh, for humility. It's a time for taking stock of what is going on here. But you say, Saul died and he deserved that. Yes, that's true. And what have you deserved? sink in. What have you deserved? David, at his reaction, falls in line with his conviction was that the Lord was judge, that he was not. So he would not assume the right to execute judgment on Saul. And when that judgment fell, he grieved over that, understanding the judgment of God being displayed. And in this, David foreshadows Jesus. Think about what I read earlier from Luke 13. For some that came to tell Jesus about 
tragic events that had happened. And it doesn't tell why, but you can read into Jesus' answer that they came seemingly clothed in some pride or self-righteousness and asking Jesus to speak to the horrible deaths of these Galileans that had been taken and killed and their bloods mixed in sacrifice. What an awful way to die, filled with both physical pain and spiritual uh, desecration. And then there are these, uh, these people from Siloam whom a tower had collapsed on, and uh, you could say, well, look at this. It must be the hand of God against those sinners. But Jesus answered them in this way. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Uses that situation to confront those who are also sinners. To point them to the only way of redemption and point point out the fact that by justice, we all deserve the judgment of God against us. As he speaks in this way, Jesus exposes our tendency to self-righteousness. They got what they deserved, and when we say that, we are identifying ourselves as somehow not deserving the same. They got what they deserved, yes. But I tell you, Unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. David mourned for Saul. He mourned for the state of God's people. Judgment had fallen on more than just Saul. The whole nation was suffering in this. David wept and fasted over this. This David was once again in line of making his steps walk in a path that follow God. Understanding that the judgment of the Lord was a time for repentance, of crying out to the Lord for forgiveness. And he has in this way showed an allegiance to God that is going to lead him through the rest of his kingship and the rest of his life. An allegiance that recognizes that God alone is the righteous judge. Let me pause and just apply that to ourselves again. Because as you consider your own guilt, you consider your own deserved punishment. Pray that you would not try to brush that aside by looking at others that are worse off than you. But instead acknowledge who you are in God's eyes. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God with tears and repentance, with fasting and crying out to him that he would forgive. And even as you consider the state of God's people, don't just moan about those that are wayward and those that are oppressing 
but instead weep and fast and pray for us, for them, for you. God would show you mercy. Which leads us to David's third and final demonstration of leaning into God's judgment. Having mourned, David returns to the Amalekite and says, How was it? How was it that you were not afraid to lift up your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? There is the kingdom principle in a nutshell, isn't it? This is what was governing David through his life. The Lord had anointed Saul as king. Saying it again, aren't I? Because this is important. God had set him apart to serve. David would not lift up his hand against him. To do so would be sacrilege. The punishment for that sacrilege would be death. Now David, as God's anointed, judged the Amalek his guilty actions. Instructed one of his soldiers to execute the Amalekite. And ironically, David was acting on what he knew. This man confessed to killing King Saul. David said, your blood is on your own head. For you have testified that you have killed the Lord's anointed. It's pretty harsh here, youth, thinking or saying. Do you recognize the holiness of God and his judgments at work here? Because David did. David recognized that the hand of God through Samuel had anointed Saul. David feared God. He said, weren't you afraid to kill Saul? This is the right kind of fear. David saw what the Lord was doing and honored, as I've said, at least the office. And it didn't change that Saul was his enemy and he laments that and he cries out to God for deliverance. But but over and over again, David honored the king. And in so doing, honored God. One other commentator puts it this way. If we think David's death sentence on the Amalekite was excessive or harsh, we fail to realize how holy is the anointed king of God's people. Moreover, we forget that in God's judgment, wages of sin is death. I want you to see God, uh, David governing his life 
by the conviction that the Lord is the righteous judge of all things. So that did teach him to restrain his desire to take matters into his own hands against Saul. But it also instructed him about his responsibility now to pronounce the judgment of God against this man and to follow through to the end. Once more, David foreshadows Jesus Christ. Because David did indeed act as king, pronouncing judgment. Because the king has been invested with this responsibility to carry out justice. The king has. And as David was looking at Saul, Saul was the king. It wasn't his right to do that. But now as king, it was his responsibility to carry out God's law, protecting the holy ones that the Lord has anointed. And now we have one who is greater than Jesus, greater than, than David, one who has been granted authority in heaven and on earth. The Father has invested Jesus with royal authority. He has invested him with the responsibility to reign over all things, and to carry out judgment and justice now and forevermore. And it is a judgment that will come to its greatest fruition when Jesus returns at his second coming. As Jesus said in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on his throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He goes on and he tells how some will be gathered in to receive a kingdom of everlasting life prepared by God for them from the foundation of the world. And the rest will be gathered up as well, but they will be gathered up for an everlasting judgment. The language of Jesus to be cursed and cast into the everlasting fire of hell prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away, said Jesus, into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. What I would have you see from David is that he exemplifies God's judgment, not his own, God's judgment. Surely the God of all the earth will indeed judge righteously. God's judgments are awesome. They are frightening. And they should sound a warning. For the wages of sin are death. Even as death came upon this Amalekite. But the death that Jesus warns of is the everlasting death of hell. The everlasting fire of judgment that comes on all those who reject him. For the wages of sin is indeed death. But, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus came to give to us. David's judgment points to 
to God's eternal judgments. And what David's judgment presses upon us is, will you take heed of that warning of the judgment to come? Will you flee the wrath that is God's righteous wrath against all unrighteousness? And flee to Jesus Christ. Plead for mercy from him. For God, who is rich in mercy, has provided a Savior, Jesus Christ, so that you might be saved by faith in him. There is a way of deliverance. That way of deliverance is to repent of your sins, to come to Jesus Christ, to find mercy in him. Pray that you, too, would mourn over your own sin, that you would, uh, would come to the Lord to find mercy, knowing that he has promised to give mercy to all that would come to him by faith. Let's bow and pray to our great King. Lord God, there are so many times that I find myself trying to clothe myself in righteousness of my own making. I find myself trying to take matters into my own hands, to try to work things out the way I think they ought to work out. And I find myself rejoicing over the, over the downfall of, of others around me. I'm convicted, O oh Lord, by, by a passage like this that understands that your judgment is an opportunity, is, is a call to grieving and repentance myself. So, Lord, I pray that the warning of David's judgment as he leans into your judgment, pray that that warning would be taken to heart by each of us, that daily we would preach that gospel to ourselves, that we are not saved by our own righteousness, we're saved by the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Pray, O Lord, that we would cast ourselves on that mercy each and every day. Lord, you are a righteous judge. You are also a merciful Savior. So we thank you for that Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Prompted by this uh, this warning of judgment to sing Psalm 130, ask the question, Lord, who could stand if you, my Lord, marked each iniquity? It's kind of the question that comes upon us when, when you face judgment, the judgment of God. But David goes on and says, but uh, you are one who pardons sin. You may be worshipped and reverenced. That is the mercy that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we can rejoice and repent. Using Psalm 130, Selection A, let's do that. I invite you to stand to sing. <laughs>